All right, good morning. How's everybody doing today? My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Westlight. We're glad that you can uh, join us here today. And we are uh, wrapping up our series entitled Walking the Labyrinth Together. Before the series, I didn't know what a labyrinth was, so I'm glad that we have this series uh, together. Um, I was homeschooled, so my, my knowledge is a limited to what my mom knows, and she didn't know what a labyrinth was. So I'm glad that we can go through this series and educate myself. But anyway, what we're doing is we're using a personality assessment, a personality um, measurement, in order to understand ourselves better and understand others better so that we can improve our relationships. And the specific personality assessment measure that we're using is called the DISC, and it stands for D-I-S-C. So here's a quick review of the four different categories, okay? Um, most of you, I think, have taken it already. If you haven't taken it already, please do so. It's on the e-bulletin. It's only 24 questions, so it's really quick, and uh, we, re- we really encourage you to do so. Okay, so at the top, it's supposed to say dominant, but it, it's cut off by the screen. And the brief description is people with dominant personalities like to get things done. They're fast-paced, they're results-oriented, okay? In contrast, we have the influencer personalities. They like to get recognition, and they're very outgoing, they're very enthusiastic. And then we have the steadiness personality, which is bottom left. They like to get along. They're all about relationships. And finally, we have the fourth one, which is conscientiousness, and they're highly structured, they're highly logical, and they like to get things right. Okay, so I wanted to further elucidate or understand these different categories by looking at um, pop culture and different characters from pop culture. So the first one I want to look at is the sitcom known as Friends, okay? So we have what, Rachel, what's that guy's name? Ross, Monica, thank you, and Joey. Thank you, I got the last one. (laughs) And I asked... Paul Tamura to help me out with this. Now, Paul, how long have you known uh, Friends for? Or how long have you watched Friends for? Okay. Which, long time ago. So he, he's known all the seasons. And what character, do you, what character do you identify with most, Paul? Okay, you didn't say you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I... I I know I'm the letter C. Okay. And my guess is um, that Ross is the letter C. I didn't think I would be Ross. But okay. The letters man. So maybe identify with Ross. Okay. All right. So, using your knowledge and your experience of the show, who do you think is the dominant personality of these so, four? Um, I think that Monica is the dominant. Monica. Very good. Excellent. Okay, what's the second one? Well, I, I want to know, how many people know the show Friends? Oh, okay, good. Okay, so the second one is Influencer. These are the um, so, people who like recognition. I, I said Joey. Joey. Very good. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, Rachel. Steadiness. All right. <laughs> Rachel, and the okay. conscientiousness <laughs> is Ross. Very good. Everyone give him a hand. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. All right, actually, I want you to keep this. Now, many of you know Daniel Wong, and he's my cousin. Paul knows Friends quite well because Daniel Wong, his son-in-law, was actually on Friends. And so this is Daniel in the race car episode in season three. And I'm going to ask you one more question. Your son-in-law of the disc personality, what do you think that he fits in? What category do you think he is? Uh, Daniel is I, influencer. 
Wow, he is five for five. Thank you so much, Paul. All right. Okay, the next one I want to look at is uh, Harry Potter, and I asked Britton to help me out with this. All right, so Britton, what's your favorite book out of all the Harry Potter series? The fourth one, which is called? Uh, I think it's The Prisoner of Azkaban. The Prisoner of Azkaban. No, no. All okay, right. I like The Prisoner of Azkaban the best, whichever that one is. Okay, the book number one. three. Okay. Hopefully you will not struggle on this exam right here. I'm going to do terribly. Okay. Dominant one. Who's the dominant personality here? <laughs> Help her out. Help her out. Okay, we think that Harry... Very good, excellent. Harry is number one. Okay, the next one, influencer, people who like recognition. So we think this one's Ron. Why are you using the, the pronoun we? Because we as a community in this row... Okay, all right, good, very good. It is Ron. The next one, steadiness. I told you last week I don't like the microphone. Steadiness, people who value relationships. Um... That one's Neville. Very good. Neville Longbottom. And finally, conscientiousness, people who like to get things right. Hermione. We, of course, know it's Hermione. Excellent. Very good. Thank you. And finally, last but not least, we have Star Wars. And Daryl's going to help us with Star Wars here. We have Luke, C-3PO. Uh, what's that guy's name? Han Solo? And Dark <laughs> Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Daryl. Here we go. Dominant. Oh, shoot. All right, Dominant. Which was the first one? Darth Vader. Start Darth Vader. Okay. And the next one? Uh, influencer. Han influencer. Solo. Han Solo. Oh, my goodness. Okay, steadiness? That'd be Luke. Very good. And conscientiousness. C-3PO. Very good. Daryl. All right. Man, there wasn't anybody who got anything wrong. I did not give them the answers. Trust me. Okay. So just as a review, here's our pastoral staff and the different personalities that we have. Now, how many of you all, by raise of hands, have taken the disc? Okay, a lot of you. Now, keep your hands up if you are completely satisfied with your results. Okay, wow. Okay, so about 10 25% of you are still happy with your results, right? Okay, I'm like most of you, right? Here are my results. Here are the four categories. I'm what's called a conscientiousness dominant profile, meaning my primary is conscientiousness and then my secondary is dominant. And I don't like this profile. I hate being, I was just compared to Hermione and C-3PO. I'd rather be somebody who's steadiness, right? People who, person who values relationships. So I wish that my profile was steadiness, conscientiousness. I wish my, I wish my steadiness was a little bit higher and my conscientiousness was a little bit lower. And it reminds me that life is just a uh, constant process of us uh, refining and fine-tuning our personality, right? So said in another way, aspects of our personality must continually be celebrated and calibrated, right? And we need a balance, okay? So on one hand, we need to honor and encourage ourselves and say, hey, we're very happy for this certain aspect of our personality. And on the other hand, we need to say, hey, how can we improve as well? And there needs to be balance. Let's say that I'm over here always encouraging myself and saying, my personality is so great, this could lead to arrogance. But over here, if I'm always saying, you know what, my head's always in the dumps, I need to improve upon my um, personality, that could lead to self-criticism or self-loathing. So we need a balance, okay? Uh, Earlier, our sermons in the series have focused more on the former, which is how do we celebrate our personality? 
How do we become aware of our own, the way we tick, and how do we become aware of others? Now, this message specifically will be focused on the latter, which is how do we calibrate our personality? How do we change? And I want to answer this question through a story, and this story involves a past supervisor of mine about five years ago. This is not her, but she looks like her, okay? She's about 75, and her name is, I'll use her name as Marge. That'll be her pseudonym. So about five years ago, she is my supervisor, and we uh, would meet in Santa Monica, and we were having a celebration in downtown L.A., East. And there's about eight of us, and so after we were done with group supervision, we had a reservation for um, dinner in downtown L.A. at around five or six. So we're done with group supervision. We're heading to the cars. Mars decided to take one car. My colleague, who's around my age, he decided to take the other car. There's around eight of us, so we split half and half. I get into Marge's car, and I was walking up. I pull up my cell phone. I said, hey, Marge, do you want me to um, pop up the GPS so you know the directions to the DTLA? And I noticed that Bill is laughing now, right? Why are you laughing, Bill? <laughs> okay. So my assumption is that Tim uses a GPS and Bill doesn't? Yeah, no. He can't, he can't go anywhere without that. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> okay, so Tim's a Lyft driver and he, he relies on his GPS. So I'm pulling out my cell phone and Marge says, put that thing away, Tim. And I said, sorry, you could have used nicer language. I mean, you could have been mannered and said, just please put it away. But she said, no, I don't need that GPS. So I said, okay. We get in the car. We drive down to downtown L.A. We go east on Wilshire, and then we take the 10 east, right? Everything's going smoothly. And then we hit really bad traffic, traffic like we weren't moving at all. So I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, I wish I had that GPS. I could have put on ways that could have showed all the, the red and the green, and I go into the green, right? But she was stubborn, and she said, no, I, I got this. So out of the corner of my eye, I see her go, boom, and she goes right off in an exit. I don't know where we are. We're sort of in the, um, the not nice area of the 10. <laughs> so we're going off of the 10, right? And I don't know what streets she's on. She's going through these alleys, She's going through th- these streets I'd never heard of. It felt like we were driving in the back of people's backyards. Like she, she just knew her route. Um, and so we finally get to the restaurant, and we're there like 10 minutes early. The other car, again, it was a colleague who, who drove the other car. They were allowed on the GPS. They were about 10 minutes late, right? So I sit down with Marge, and I said, Marge, how did you do that? Like how, did, how do you know how to take these, the alleys and all these different streets? And she said, Tim, I'm one of the few L.A. natives here. I've lived here for 75 years. I know L.A. like the back of my hand. And then she wouldn't, she wouldn't shut up, and she kept on talking about, and this building was here, and this room was here. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. She was able to change and flex because she had an intimate understanding of L.A. and the terrain of L.A., right? And the life lesson here for me was that change requires understanding. In order for us to change different parts of our personality, we must be intimately aware of our own internal terrain. How can we expect to change different parts of our personality if we're we're unaware of how that, that personality developed, right? We have to be completely aware of the different experiences, 
the different um, transitions or different factors that shaped our personality. So how then do we increase our understanding of our personality? And there's two factors I want to talk about. One is shared factors, and the other is unique factors, two things that shape our personality, increase our understanding so that we can change. The first thing is shared factors, and it's called shared because it's shared amongst a, a lot of group of people, a big amount of people. And just three um, examples I want to give is just culture, era, and age. There's a lot more examples, but I want to briefly run through these three. Culture, right? My personality would be very different if I grew up in, let's say, Hawaii, where it's very relaxed, slow pace, compared to if I grew up in a place like Japan, where it's very high pace and the work ethic is, you know, off the charts, right? Different eras. So if I grew up in an era where, um, for example, the Great Depression, if I grew up in the Great Depression, that would shape my personality very differently than if I grew up current, currently in our current day of age, which is high information, uh, a digital age. Now this last one, age, I want to talk to you and explain to you about age through a study by Srivastava in 2003. Srivastava looked at over 130,000 individuals, okay? Individuals by the age of 20 through 60. And this person asked the research question, does the results of the disc personality change with age? Simple question. And here are their results. Influencer, they found, decreases with age. Conscientiousness, they found, increases with age. And steadiness also increases with age, and then it sort of dips out at around 60. Okay? Now, the, in their discussion section, their conclusion was, this makes intuitive sense, right? Influencers, again, these are people who uh, want recognition, they desire recognition. That need sort of dies down when you age, right? Conscientiousness, which is, again, um, the need to get things right. They argued that around 30 or so, that increases because people typically are really involved in their career. And you have to be on top of it. You've got to be on time. You've got to get things right. Steadiness, they argued, also increase with age at around 20 or 30 because that's when people typically start a family. And so there's a shift or focus in on relationships. This is a fascinating study to me. Just the factor of age changes our personality. Now, we talked about shared factors. I want to talk about unique factors now. These are unique to us as individuals, okay? And again, there are so many different unique factors out there, but let me just talk about three here. So family system, right? My personality would be very different if, um, by birth order, I'm the youngest of three. If I were the oldest, I would probably be very different in terms of how I'm shaped, um, if I grew up in a family that was not intact, maybe divorce, or if I was adopted, uh, if I had a twin, so on and so forth. The different uh, ways that the family is shaped affects our personality. You can talk about friends, right? The different friends I hang out with. If I were to hang out with jocks compared to the nerds, my personality would be very different. Significant life events, right? Some people um, grow up in, and when they age, they sort of, move around from house to house, that affects your personality. And maybe as you age, you realize that it's hard for you to connect and maintain long-lasting friendships. Or maybe some of you have lost a parent. There's a death of a friend, death of a colleague, so on and so forth. Or maybe there is an instance of trauma that really affected your personality. 
Now we talked about shared factors and unique factors, and I don't want to talk about these two things from a distance. I want to share with you um, an area of my life where I've been trying to calibrate or change, and I want to share with you some of my, um, my understanding around it. So as many of you just saw on the screen, I'm highly conscientious uh, in terms of the personality. I like to get things right. I'm very analytical. Um, I like to be prepared. I like to be punctual, okay? And most of the time, this is good, but sometimes this, is get, this can get in the way of my, person, of my friendships with others and my relationships. Who wants to be a friend with C-3PO, right? It's just, you're just very serious, and you want to be a little bit more loose and flexible, okay? So through many years of my own personal therapy, through many years of talking with uh, Megan and processing through it, I've noticed that one thing really st- stands out to me in terms of what developed <coughs> this uh, personality trait. And it was actually my experience at UCLA. I see that there's a lot of UCLA students here. I had graduated. Let's not go there. <laughs> and I went to UCLA, and I was a transfer, so I was only there for two years, okay? And I loved my experience there. But what made my experience at UCLA so unique was that my dad was also faculty at UCLA while I was there. So my dad, he gave me two choices. He said, Tim, one is you can live on campus. He lives in Culver City, or I grew up in Culver City. You can live on campus, but you have to pay for your own uh, room and board. You have to pay for your own apartment. Or you can continue living at home, but you carpool with me to work or to school every day. So like an idiot, I chose the latter, okay? (laughs) So I carpool with my dad for every single day of my college experience. Do any of you here do that right now? <laughs> None. Okay. This is, this is my experience. Okay. And, you know, I've, I know my dad, and before college, he had a routine of just coming home. Sometimes he would cook. If my mom cooked, then he would clean, and then he would just watch TV, and he would just relax. He was a very lighthearted individual, man of few words, and he, was, he would just come home very relaxed. But I encountered my father in a very different way at UCLA. So the first two weeks, I remember just being in shell shock, not because of my classes at UCLA, but because of being with my father. Every morning, even if my class was at 11 or 1, we would wake up at 7. We would wake up at 6.10 so we can leave at 7.10. He needed to get to work at 8. And this is not an over-exaggeration. Out of my two years there, he was never late. 710 right on the dot, okay? We would drive together, and we, I would drop him off, and then I would park in uh, 100 Medical Plaza. And back then, d- raise your hand if you know the um, Toyota uh, Sienna, the car. Continue to raise your hands if you know the predecessor. It's called the Previa. My dad had the Previa. And we would drive in this thing. This is the car that we had. We were even driving this thing every morning. This is why I wasn't able to date in college. Because every morning, I drove this thing and dropped off my dad. My head would be down, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, thank God it's so early in the morning. Probably my classmates are probably not here. And, we'd drop, and I would drop my dad off. And to make matters worse, one year, um, the back of the window was smashed. And so my dad's Chinese. And so the way to, to fix it 
he puts a black trash can bag over it. So I'm driving up to campus, and it's going, the back of the window just going back and forth, and I had no chance, no chance as a student. But besides this, I would drop him off, and my dad was just so serious. He knew exactly what to do, where to be. Um, People really respected him at work. He was the the prior dean at the dental school, and so I just, people were like opening doors to him. I'm like, are you opening doors to my dad? That's a little bit odd. Um, He had, he runs a practice, and then he also teaches, and so we're talking one day. I was like, hey, dad, how do you do it? How do you see me so many patients? And he says, when you have 25 patients a day, you learn to manage the clock, and manage the clock he did because every day I would meet my dad in a dental school at 5.30, we would always leave the same exact time. Sometimes we'd leave earlier, but we'd never leave late. He was just very precise. And what I learned from this experience was that in order for me to be successful like my father in life, I gotta be on my game. I gotta be right. I gotta be on time. I gotta be serious. I gotta be very accurate. Now there's also a character in the Bible who I wanna talk about whose um, personality was in need of calibration. And this person's name was Thomas. And Thomas is, uh, he comes into the the narrative in John 20. And before we read this uh, passage, I want to talk to you about some context here. So before this passage, Jesus just passed away, just died on the cross. And then he shows himself to Mary Magdalene. Then after he shows himself to Mary Magdalene, then he shows himself to the disciples. Not all the disciples, because they weren't all there. Okay? All of them except two. So there were 10 of them, right? There's 12 disciples, but all of them weren't there except two. One of them being Thomas. Now, we don't know where Thomas was. Some scholars argue that he wasn't there because he is such in deep grief that he wasn't with the disciples. The other disciple who wasn't there, of course, was very good. Judas, because he, he killed himself. He died before um, Jesus' death, okay? So this is where we pick up the passage. Now Thomas, also known as uh, Didymus, Didymus is also another word for twin. Thomas was a twin. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples uh, told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is why people refer to Thomas as Doubting Thomas. And I might actually reframe it and call him Demanding Thomas, because that's a lot of things. Now let's put this in context here, right? It says here that the disciples came to Thomas and told him that Jesus was alive. We just, I just went over with you how many disciples there were. It's not one disciple. It's not two disciples. It's ten of his close friends who are saying Jesus is alive. And yet he still doesn't believe. Let's also recognize that Thomas was with Jesus during his whole entire ministry. Thomas saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead. Thomas saw all the healings and the, the miracles, and yet he still didn't believe. He said, I need 
to see Jesus, I need to put my finger through his hands and in his side. So let's continue with the passage. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the, door, the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. And tradition tells us that Thomas goes on and preaches the word in faith. Not in doubt, but in faith in what is known as current day Iraq, Iran, and all the way to India where he finally dies professing his faith. So Jesus took somebody who, with a high amount of doubt and changed it to a high amount of faith. And my question to you is, how did God change his heart? So I want to review the passage here, and I think God did two things here. Jesus did two things. The first one is, Jesus came and stood among them. Okay? Jesus could have said, oh my gosh, that Thomas... He's been with me for all these years. The 10 disciples came to him, and why is he doubting? Jesus could have been critical and judgmental, and Jesus could have said, hey, you know, I'm going to wait until this Thomas guy comes and approaches me. But the text says the opposite. Jesus approaches Thomas and goes towards Thomas. Now, the second thing he does was that he gives Thomas exactly what he asked for. Thomas's request was threefold, right? I need to see the nail marks in his hands. I need to put my finger where the nerves were. And I need to put my hand in his side. What does Jesus do? He says, put your finger here, see my hands, and put it into my side. Jesus does exactly what Thomas's need, Thomas's needs to calibrate or change his personality. Earlier I said that change requires a deep understanding of our, our eternal terrain, right? I can't think of anybody else with a greater understanding than Christ alone. Of our internal terrain, uh, ter- internal terrain, our internal maps, Jesus knows our dark sides. He knows us intimately. I shared how one area in my life um, that I'm trying to calibrate is being too serious, too analytical. And here's how Jesus uh, responded to me. He gave me six nieces and nephews. Um... I can't, be, uh, I can't be serious with them. It's impossible. They, they're just really silly, and I can't be a- analytical. They just bring out a very fun, fun-filled side out of me. <laughs> um, here's what he also did. He gave me this church, and he gave me GLOW, which is our young adult college ministry. Um, being with you UCLA students, it, it brings out a lot of good characters in me. And so I appreciate that. You guys are really silly. Um, you guys are just very lighthearted. I really appreciate your presence here. Every week, even the young adults, Mitchell and Cam, I don't know if you see, they hug me. They give me a big hug every week, a huge big bear hug. And that's something that I still haven't gotten used to. <laughs> but it lightens me up. It makes me feel loose, right? This is the way God shows up with me, how he calibrates my heart. The neat thing about God is that he tailors his interventions towards us, right? He's not going to show up in ways that he needs for me to to Kelvin or to Elaine or to Sharon, anybody like that. He's going to change it up. He knows exactly what he needs. 
in order to, to transform our aspects of our personality. So my question to you today is what area or what aspect of your personality needs calibration? What area or, area or aspect of personality needs transformation? Some of you may have doubt, maybe a lack of faith, uh, like Thomas. Some of you may be like me. You might be overly analytical. Some of you may be a little bit too passive. Some of you may have a propensity towards uh, being envious or jealous, whatever it is. I'm here to say that God knows exactly what you need, and he's offering a chance for you to increase your awareness of this part of yourself and to experience transformation. We're going to transition into a time where there are going to be two stations here at the end of the aisle set up. And there's going to be pieces of paper, pens, and um, two jars. And after I wrap up in um, this message, I encourage you to just be curious about one aspect of your personality that God can calibrate, just one. And then after you do that, if you can just be curious about how this one personality trait developed. So I'm going to ask you to just write down two things on the sheet of paper. One area of personality that needs calibration, and two, what's one area that we can change or develop, or uh, how did it develop? And then there's a jar there. Please fold it up. Please do not put your name on it. Just put the piece of paper in the jar. And afterward, I strongly encourage you to receive prayer from the prayer team in the back. You don't have to open up about every single issue that we talked about here. You don't even have to open up about what you wrote on the paper. You can simply go up to them and say, please pray for me. I hope that this time uh, God will really challenge you and push you to better yourself or calibrate your lives in ways that we can uh, grow together so that we, we might be able to relate to one another um, in more healthier ways. Let's pray.